for all of us asking this question, what is the wise thing to do, is really important. Because if we would begin to ask this question at every level, at every layer of our lives, this really has a potential to foolproof our lives. Our marriages, the way we parent our kids, the way we handle our money, the way we date, the way we handle morality, and even the way we handle business, if you're a business person then the expanded question has the potential to foolproof our lives as well. And it's this. In light of my past experience, my current circumstances, where I'm at in life right now, and then my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? So again, in light of my past experience, my current circumstance, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? What is the wise thing to do? So it's asking the question, what is the wise thing to do financially? What is the wise thing to do morally? What is the wise way to conduct all my relationships the way I date? Who I date? You know, why am I going to date? Where I go? How far I'm going to go? And then my entertainment. What is the wise thing for me to do when it even comes to my entertainment? Things I allow in my mind. And suddenly that question really has the potential to kind of penetrate through the smoke screen, screens that we use to keep God at arm's length. Because a lot of times when that happens, instead of asking a question, we have these um, things that we do that will keep God over here. That God can't, we don't want God into this part. See, if we'll ask this question, it has the potential to penetrate our culture and the way we deceive even ourselves. Because we so easily... <clears throat> excuse me, can deceive ourselves, it has the potential to become really the lens through which we view all of life. And we're smart enough to know, especially the older we get, that if we've been asking this question, what is the wise thing to do for the past five or ten years, that our lives would look different, probably even better. Our Heavenly Father wants us to ask the better question, what is the wise thing to do? Now, we said last week that asking what the wise thing to do is different than asking what is the right thing to do or what is the wrong thing to do. Totally different. The reason we say that is as a, as a pastor through, through the years, many people have come up to me and they've asked this question. Rich, does the Bible have to say anything about subject X? Now, working with high school students for a long, long time, even middle school students, it's that's the question. Hey, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Fill in the blank. You can just imagine the kinds of questions that, that I get, that I've gotten. And typically I'll say, well, no, because that certain subject really wasn't a subject 4,000 years ago. So the Bible doesn't necessarily address that particular issue. And I know what they're thinking. Well, if the Bible isn't against it, then what you're saying is that God is for it? Or if there, is a, if there is not a thou shalt not, then there must be a thou shalt, right? That's kind of what the thinking is or what they're hoping. The temptation is to always say again, where exactly is the line between right and wrong? Like, where is the, where's the line? Where's the line between moral and immoral, between ethical and unethical? Where's the line? Because what, in essence, is what... I want to know how close that I can get to that line without being burned. 
without facing any consequences, without being at odds with God. Where's that line? But the question isn't what's right or what's wrong. The question of, for, for us should be, what is the wise thing to do? The real question isn't, what can I get away with? Because that's a lot of times what's behind that. Or where is the moral limit for me? The question is, in light of my past experience, my current circumstance, where I'm at right now in life, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? That's different than asking, is there a verse against that? That's different than asking where the line is. That's different than even asking, is it wrong? People ask things like, do you think the Bible is against drinking? I've had this question. Even other things. But do you think the Bible is against drinking? Because they want to know what the Bible has to say so that they know what they can get by with. That's what they're really asking. Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, don't get drunk. So, if you're old enough to drink. So, if you're not old enough to drink, then this is a moot point. It doesn't matter. It's illegal. Don't drink. But what the Bible says about it is, if you're going to drink and you're old enough to drink, it becomes a wisdom issue. It says, the Bible says, don't get drunk. The Bible's not against it. There are no verses that say you shouldn't drink alcohol. But here is the question. In light of your past experience, like your family history, like do you have alcoholism that runs in your family? So in light of your, your past experience, in light of your current circumstances and your responsibilities, you know, what do you have going on in your life right now? And then light, in light of your future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do as it relates to alcohol? I've seen so many times you have professional athletes who ruin their lives. They haven't made, but they go and they use alcohol or drugs or do something. They do something stupid and it wrecks their career for the rest of their lives. So in light of your past experiences, your current circumstances and your future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do as it relates to alcohol? And sometimes another question that is asked, typically it's asked by, you know, high school students or college students about, about sex. That comes up a lot, you know, because, and then sometimes also the question is asked by people who have been married in the past and now they're not married anymore. They're single. So it's the same kind of question between those that are in high school or those that are in college, but then the question sometimes by those who were married before and now they're not married. And maybe the person who was married and they're not married anymore, they're asking a question, well, I was married for like 15 years. And the Bible has some things to say about sex uh, if you're not married. But does that really apply to me anymore? I mean, after all, I've been married before and I'm dating. Come on, I'm 30-something. Is this really realistic? Do the same rules apply to me that apply to teenagers? had somebody ask me in the first service, he goes, that was our conversation. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But that's why I left the name out. So <laughs> I didn't say the name. So I say, let's ask this question then differently. In light of your past experience, your current circumstance, and your future hopes and dreams, to be Sexually involved with somebody who you're not married to, is that the wise thing to do? And they're like, well, I knew you were going to ask that. Well, I don't know if it's the wise thing to do. Well, you see, that's the issue. And then I would ask the same person this question. Has sex outside of marriage made your life better or ultimately more complicated? 
you see, once you start asking this question, what it does, it begins to kind of rip through the layers, doesn't it? It, it forces us to really look at what's the real issue? What's our motive behind even asking these questions? But that's what a God who loves us would want us to do. Now, if you're not, at, if you're not someone who's asking what is the wise thing to do, like that's not what you're asking. You don't ever ask what is the wise thing. You just kind of want to know right or wrong or whatever. If you're not asking what the wise thing to do is, then when I ask those two questions about drinking and the morality thing, you probably had one of three responses. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning. One response is this, if you want to write this in. I don't want to talk about that. That's your response. You bring up alcohol, you bring up sex, drugs, whatever it is. I don't want to talk about that. Because this person, their response to it is, I don't want to talk about that because it's all going to work out. That's what they think in their mind. I know what I do, and I do what I do. It's going to be fine. I'm not going to become an alcoholic, and nobody's getting pregnant. I'm not going to get a disease. I'm fine. It's all going to work out. You're just overreacting. That's one response. Here's another response. You know what? I hear what you're saying. And I'm old and smart enough to know you're probably right, but I just have to really be honest with you this morning. I don't really care. You're probably right, but I don't really care. I don't really care. And I'm not going to get up there with you this morning and argue with you that drinking is the wise thing or not the wise thing to do because no matter what you say, no matter what verses you bring, when I get in my car and I go home, I'm going to do what I want to do. I would even acknowledge that some of the stuff that you're saying this morning is true. And the stuff that I'm doing is not leading me in the best direction. And I realize there might even be some consequences. But I've just got to tell you right now, I don't really care. I've read the warnings. I've seen the disclaimers. And I know where this may go. But I don't really care. Then there's a third category. Now, I would say not many of the people in this category are here today at church or watching online generally because the people in this category don't generally go to church. Now, I, I, uh, there may be a few of you, you know, I don't want to discriminate, so there might be a few of you here that are in this third category, and this is what you would say. You know what? That is exactly what I would expect from a pastor, right? You're so narrow-minded, and people like you want to impose your morality and your standards on everybody else. So I'm telling you, keep your nose out of my bedroom and out of my liquor cabinet. Stay out of my life. I can do what I want to do. That's this third category. Stay out of my life. I can do what I want to do. And there's something in this person then that wants to come back and preach me a little sermon. You've got something that you want to say. Because not only do you think that I'm narrow-minded and that I'm stupid... You think anyone who follows these little Christian rules, they're totally out to lunch. They don't know what they're talking about. And you love talking about it because you've got yourself a case and you're very convincing. Now, now here's the amazing thing. The Bible, the Bible, this Bible was written by over 40 different authors. Yes, God inspired, but 40 different authors over thousands of years, over multiple continents. It's amazing gives in detail a description of the three kinds of people that I just described. 
In other words, this book says, if you're not going to ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? If you're not sitting, this is my wise chair this morning. See how nice it looks. It looks wise, I think. But this is my wise chair. And if you're not sitting in the wise seat and you're not going to ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? Then you're going to find yourself in one of these three chairs this morning. So let me just say this real quick. If you, if you feel you are a person who often asks, what is the wise thing to do? I mean, that's what you do normally. You ask, what is the wise thing? And you know that, yeah, I feel like I'm in this chair. Then don't tune me out this morning. Don't think this doesn't apply to me. Because what I want you to know, this message can help you then to pray for and relate to people who sit in these three chairs. Okay? And as I share this morning, I also want to kind of give a disclaimer with this. I want this to, I hope you don't feel this isn't like judgment coming from me. I want you to see it as like a warning light that comes on on your dashboard. You don't get mad at that warning light. I mean, you can. You can probably punch the warning light like it's going to do something. The warning light is just to tell you, hey, there's, there's an issue that you might want to resolve. And kind of this message this morning is if you're sitting in one of these chairs, there's an issue that you might want to resolve. I hope that's how you'll look at that this morning. And in the book of Proverbs, the author Solomon said, other than the wise person, there are three other kinds of people. There's the naive, the fool, and the scoffer or mocker. And throughout the book of Proverbs, he talks about the characteristics of all three of these people. What happens, how you discipline them, what to expect from them, what to do with them if you know, they're in, their, in, their, in your life or if you're one of them, and ultimately what happens to people who continue to sit in one of these three seats. So today, I'm going to talk about these three people. And then at the end, what I want to do is I'm going to ask you, where do you sit? Do an honest evaluation. Because even as a Christian, you can sit in one of these three seats. You know, what I hope is that you're here or want to be here asking what is the wise thing to do in my life? In any circumstance, any situation, ask, what is the wise thing? But there's a chance that you could be sitting over here. So at the end, I'm going to ask you, where, where, where are you sitting? Now, I'll just go ahead and let you know, if you sit in the middle seat, this one right here, this is the fool, the fool's stool. What you're saying, if you're sitting in that seat, is I, I don't care. Whatever you're going to say, whatever it is, I don't care. If you sit in the mocker's seat, right here, my gold throne, if you sit in the mocker's seat, you're going to get pretty mad this morning probably. And you're going to want to write me an email. So go ahead, jerry at seminalchurch.com. That's where you write the email. Thank you, Jerry, if you're watching. There you go. Uh, you're going to want to express yourself, and on the way home, you're going to want to preach a little sermon to, to the people around you to unwind everything that I said to you. It's just in that person to do this. Now, if you're sitting right here in the naive seat, you're going to think I'm just an overreactive parent. That's okay. We've all been here at some point in our lives. All of us have been here. Okay, so let's just start out by talking about the naive seat. We're going to talk about the naive seat. Here, here's the thing. The, the first thing you need to know about the naive person is that if you are one, you won't admit it. 
I've never met anybody who said, you know what my problem is? I'm just naive. No, nobody says that. Because by the time that you figure it out, guess what? You're not anymore. You're not naive to that. So it's a difficult category to even talk about. But let me just tell you who you are, okay? If you're in middle school, high school, a freshman in college, or maybe you even just moved to central Florida from maybe a small town and you're single, look, look, this sounds like an insult, but it's not an insult. So just follow with me and listen, okay, my high school group, not insulting. This is not an insult, okay? It sounds like an insult to say you're naive, but it's not. Everybody comes into the world naive. What the naive person lacks, according to Scripture and observation, is experience. Look, you, you can't have but so much experience by the time you're 17 years old. It's just reality. A 17-year-old doesn't have the same life experience that a 30-year-old has. They just don't. It's not your fault. This is not a put-down. It sounds like a put-down so much that nobody is willing to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm naive. I need to face the fact and deal with and respond to life accordingly. Typically, that, if you have teenagers, typically that's not the response. The naive person just lacks experience. So consequently, they think they can figure out life on their own. I remember this was me. They figure, out they, they figure they can figure out life on their own because they've never seen any evidence otherwise other than their mom and dad saying, well, you better listen. When I was your age, or if you're not careful, a naive person listens to all that. It's like, wah, 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 wah. They don't listen, typically, and it goes in one ear and out the other. But again, it's just because of being naive. And when they hear that, they express themselves. What are you talking about, pregnant? We just went on a date. What is this overreactive, harsh criticism? Because the naive person, again, not your fault, you just lack experience. So when someone who is wise tries to speak into your life, you think they're just way overreacting. But of course you would. You're naive. That's okay. I mean, that's a part of that. The passage of scripture that talks clearly about the naive is found in Proverbs chapter 7. This is a passage where a wise man, um, he's standing at the window of his house. And he sees this naive young man walking down the street. He knows the direction that this young man is walking. He... The naive young man is walking toward the part of town where the prostitutes come out at night. And he watches this naive man, and he knows what's going to happen. But he also knows this, that the naive guy does not know what's going to happen. He thinks he has an idea. He knows that the naive guy is thinking, this is going to be great. This is going to be the best night of my life. This is going to be a memory that I want to cherish for forever. I'm just going to love to have this memory in my past. The wiser, older person is looking on, looking out the window and thinking and saying, you're naive. Look what it says, Proverbs chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It says this, At the window of my house, I looked through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed the, uh, among the young men a youth 
who lacked judgment. Okay, just pause right there again because I know this is kind of harsh sounding and hard to accept. Just remember, we all come into this world lacking judgment. This is not a put down. In any, I mean, as adults even, in any arena of life where we don't have experience, we lack judgment a lot of times. And it goes on to say, he was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. Then it goes on to talk about what happens as he gets closer and she comes up to him. They have this conversation and the naive guy is probably thinking, this is going to be the best night of my life. And he's into it. And the wise guy is thinking, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And at the end of the passage, it says this. It says, he followed her like an ox to the slaughter. If you wondered where that phrase came from, this is where it came from. He followed her like an ox to the slaughter. He had no idea. And you know why? Because at a certain stage of our lives, we just lack experience. It's just a part of life. So consequently, we lack judgment. That's why we need other people in our lives to help us to learn about things that we don't know yet. I'd rather learn from somebody else than try to figure it out on my own. This is why college freshmen get so many credit card applications in the mail. My son Luke just graduated from UCF. He's still getting those dumb things in the mail. I mean, it seems like every day these credit card companies know that most, unless they're being taught differently, that these these college students will fill them out and they'll abuse the credit. Because, see, they know that young people don't know what it's like to file for bankruptcy and carry that kind of weight. In their lives, they're inexperienced, and so credit card companies know this, so they bombard these freshmen. I don't know if they're trying intentionally to ruin their lives financially, but as many as my son has gotten in the mail, I'm like, somebody's trying something. But why do they do this? Because they know they're naive, and if they're not taught different, they will take advantage of it. Why? Again, because they're naive, and it's a part of being young. It's why at a certain stage of your life, You think sleeping around and having sex with somebody that you really love is okay. You know why you think that? Because you're naive. Again, not a put down. You've never been 30 years old and had to look back at a boatload of memories that you wish you could erase. You've yet to meet the guy or the girl that you want to spend the rest of your life with. And listen to me, you have to go into that relationship knowing this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with, but i got to lie about my past. Because if they know, they may not love me. You've never looked into the eyes of your kids when they say, Hey, Mom, hey, Dad, when you were 15, and then you're like, Oh, don't know if I want to answer that. You just think if nobody gets pregnant or sick, There are no consequences. You've not lived long enough to face the consequences of sex outside of marriage and carry that into adulthood. Of course you are. You're naive. That's why you think that. You you don't understand that. You can't help it. But listen, it's, it's because of us being naive that we don't listen, typically. And we think that everyone else around us is just overreacting. Now you know what the solution for the naive person is, and it's difficult, but God does have an answer for this. Proverbs says there's a solution. The solution of being the naive person here is just saying to our Heavenly Father, look, God, even though I don't understand all of this, even, God, if I think that you're overreacting, and I don't know if I even agree with all the things you say, God, 
even if everybody else thinks I'm an idiot and I stand alone and I'm the only one standing here, I believe that you're God and because you're God and you're smarter than me, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust that you have what's best for me in my life. And I believe when a high school student or a college student is willing to say, God, I need you to tutor me and coach me, put people in my life that will help me make these wise decisions through my years of being naive, I believe that God will preserve you and your future. I totally believe it. Now, if you sit in this chair and refuse to listen, the reality is, and you refuse to listen because maybe to you it doesn't make sense, I've watched this happen. I've been around long enough to watch it happen. The Bible says that your lack of judgment sitting in this chair can kill you physically. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. Friends that OD'd because their lack of judgment killed their lives physically. But I've also seen it happen where it kills them emotionally, morally, and relationally. So the Bible says what happened with your lack of judgment. If you're not, if you if you have, if you refuse to listen in the naive chair, that's the naive chair. The second is the fool's seat right here. This is the fool. And here's what the fool says: I know the difference between right and wrong, but again, frankly, I just don't care. Look, I've read the warning labels. I, I don't care. But don't you understand if you continue in your marriage this way? Yeah, but whatever. But don't you understand if you don't change your schedule? Yeah, whatever. But don't you understand if you continue to handle your finances? Yeah, I don't really care. The Bible says in Proverbs 10.23 that the fool finds pleasure in evil. That it's as if doing wrong is a sport. Here's, here's what it says. A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct, but a man of understanding delights in wisdom. A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct, but a man of, un of understanding delights in wisdom. That is, a fool finds pleasure in really doing whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. It gives them pleasure. They don't care. They can handle the consequences, or so they think. They can manage what comes their way. That's what they're thinking. But here's what the Bible also says in Proverbs 26, 11, that a fool is like a dog that keeps coming back to its vomit. You ever seen a dog eat its vomit? I have four dogs. I've seen it a lot. It's not pretty, smells bad, not fun to clean up. But the writer of Proverbs in this verse literally says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Not a pretty picture. That is, he keeps doing the same things over and over, and it erodes his relationships, his security. He knows that there are consequences, but he or she is just going to keep on doing it. And if you try to discipline them, guess what? They'll ignore you. If you try to warn them, they're, they're going to ignore you. Because there's no new information for the fool. You could even sit there and talk to them, and they will shake their head in agreement in your face and then go do what they're going to do. Because they say, I already know. I know. I know. Then why aren't you concerned? I don't care. The Bible says, generally speaking, the only way for a fool to change is to face the full consequences of their decisions. Warnings don't work. Threats don't work. You know, it's only when the wheels start coming off, things start falling apart at the seams, does the, the fool begin to face the consequences of their decisions. And they finally stand up and say, okay, that's enough. I've had it. 
And then they have to learn the hard way. Let me tell you, if you're a fool today, I know what you're thinking, and you're saying you're probably right. Most of the time, the only way for God to get a fool's attention is to allow that fool to face the full consequences of his or her decisions. That's why we hear so many stories of how things were just going great. They seemed they were going great, and, and all of a sudden they just took a nosedive. And at the bottom, they met God. In other words, when they were reaping what they had been sowing, they finally said, God, I need to do things differently. I can't do this anymore. That's the fool. You're probably right. I don't really care right now. Then here's the third seat over here. The third is the mocker or the scoffer seat. The mocker or scoffer. There's two different words depending on how you translate the Hebrew word. See, the, the mocker, the scoffer, they're just like the fool in that they know the difference between right and wrong, and they've both chosen to do whatever they want to do. The difference is the scoffer has chosen to be critical of everyone else who's doing the right thing. So this person, they're clueless. The fool could care less. But the scoffer or the mocker, they're critical. See, when you, dis when you try to discipline the fool, the fool will just ignore you. But when you try to discipline or correct the scoffer or the, the mocker, the Bible says that they will hate you, that they will criticize you. They'll make fun of your religion, your convictions, your standards, your ethics, and your morals. They will verbally assault you and criticize you for being who you think you ought to be. Now, if you're sitting there in the fool's in the stool and you decide to make a change in your life, the mocker, they, they will hear that and then they will, they will make fun of you because you're trying to make a change in your life. You'll never hear the end of it from the mocker or the scoffer because somehow along the way in their success, oftentimes they've determined that they are now the judge and the jury, hence the throne chair. They think they're the judge and the jury, that they can cast judgment on everyone's decisions on what they do. You know, when you're, when you're around a person like that, typically you know because you, you, you're oftentimes on pins and needles because you never know what they're going to say. You, you almost don't want to say certain things because you, you never know if they're just going to be critical or if I say this or do this, they're going to judge me. And again, there can be a Christian sitting in this seat. You've probably met some of them. Right? They're still judging, they're critical even as a Christian. If you work for someone like this, it's a miserable environment. And I hope you're not, but if you're married to someone like this, it's probably a miserable marriage. Through their criticism, they control the environment and they keep everybody off balance. Now here's the thing. The writer of Proverbs says there's no cure for the mocker or the scoffer and that the only thing you can do with a person who sits in that chair is to drive them out of your midst. So listen, I'm not telling you to quit your job and I'm not telling you to get a divorce. It's not what I'm saying. It's just explaining how difficult it can be to be around that kind of person and dealing with that kind of person. Proverbs is just explaining that. Because you can't discipline them typically because they'll hate you. You can't reprove them 
Because what they'll do is they'll prove you wrong and ruin, ruin your name, and they're almost completely unapproachable. Oftentimes we see the person who sits in that seat, they'll defend, defend it with their power, their position, and their money. Now I've seen this, it seems like on the news so much lately. Just saw it the other day. Just like a fool, they'll continue to face the consequences of their own decisions, but either politically, uh, through power, through money, they will work around the consequences, right? And then they manage the outcomes of their decisions. We see it all the time. People with a lot of money or politicians or people who do something that is completely wrong and they get away with it because of their power, their money, whatever they have, and they're able to manage the outcomes, and they get away with it. And then they often drag people down with them. Now you say, well, are you saying that there's no forgiveness or grace? No, I am not saying that at all. Please don't hear that. All I'm saying is that when you sit in one of these three chairs, your propensity here is to discount wise counsel because you lack experience. Your propensity here is to discount the wisdom of God because you don't really care. And it's not that God doesn't love you. And it's not that God doesn't want to give you a second chance. It's just you're going to refuse those chances because you don't care. And then if you're in that chair, it's not that God doesn't love you. And it's not that he hasn't sent his son to die for the mocker or the scoffer. It's just that as long as you sit there, you don't want to hear any of that. You don't want it. You don't want to surrender to anybody. Anyone who talks to you about it will give you an, uh, you'll give an earful because you have your mind made up. It's not that grace isn't available for these. It's just it's almost impossible to receive the grace if you sit in one of these three seats. Here's the real long-term issue. I don't know if I can explain it really well. I'm doing my best. I'll give it a shot to kind of explain what's going on. But see, the writer of Proverbs says this, and our observation certainly substantiates this. Eventually, all three of these people need wisdom because they begin to understand at some point in their life that life isn't working. And there are, in fact, consequences for our decisions. And now they need to know how to reverse the consequences. Suddenly the wheels are coming off and they're facing a crisis more than they have imagined and they're not able now to handle whatever consequences coming their way. They want to undo some of the decisions that they made and maybe try to patch some stuff up. They need wisdom. And then what happens, all of a sudden the scoffer realizes they're all alone. You want to know why they're all alone? Because nobody wants to be around them. And so they're now by themselves. They're getting older, life isn't working, and they need wisdom. They may not call it wisdom, but that's what they need. They, need, they know they need something. And here's the sad part. And the Bible says, not because of God's edict, but because of the nature of being one of these three people. When they need wisdom the most, they will not be able to find it. It will be invisible to them. They've rejected wisdom for so long, they won't even recognize it anymore. They will have distanced themselves so far from God's word, they won't know where to look. They won't know where to even look for wisdom. They'll have alienated themselves from anybody who would want to help them that when they go to look for that or look for that person, they're not there anymore. And wisdom won't be found. That's what Proverbs is saying. Look, I don't even need a verse in the Bible 
to tell me that. We've all seen it, haven't we? We've seen it, smart, educated, capable people who in the midst of a crisis make the dumbest decisions imaginable. And you watch them and you think, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Oftentimes it's the naive or the fool or the scoffer who's doing the best that they can, but wisdom is nowhere to be found for them. So I'm going to read it to you the way that Solomon wrote it. I like the way he wrote it. Maybe he struggled to communicate a little bit, because of, but he figured out a way to write it. The best way he could do is to personify wisdom as a woman. She comes to town and she walks down the streets. Basically, will anybody listen to the naive? She looks and says, will you accept that maybe you just don't know everything? To the fool, will you accept that maybe that there are consequences that you're facing and they are things that you cannot manage? And to the scoffer, she would just say, would you be quiet and just listen for a little bit? Listen, acknowledge that there's maybe some insecurities in you, some things, and that you don't have all the answers. Here's how, here's how he writes this in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and the fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. Now, pause right there. You might be asking, is this God speaking? No, it's not. This is just the nature of what happens when you rebuke and refuse wisdom. Remember, this is wisdom talking. What could have been a simple decision, a no-brainer, will turn out to be so complicated that those who stood on the sidelines and knew what should have been done and wanted to help will have no choice but to throw out their hands and just say, you know, this is almost funny. How could they be so blind? That's what it says there in Proverbs. It goes on to say this. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm. When disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind. When distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not chase the fear of the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat with the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear or harm. This is, remember, wisdom speaking. So my question to you here in the pavilion watching online, where are you sitting? I hope over here. Because listen, if you're here, you don't have to face the full consequences and you don't have to be so alienated from wisdom that you can't find it when you need it. Now, I'll be honest, it's difficult to get up. If you're in one of these three chairs, it's difficult to get up out of these chairs if you're there. Because typically the person that's sitting in these chairs is saying, they're just saying this, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. That's why they've been stuck here. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Even though it's difficult, though, I believe 
God would say to us, if you'll stop trusting in your own heart, I will deliver you. I will forgive all the stuff that you've done in here if you'll quit trusting in yourself. So you know where it begins? The beginning of standing up is just to say, God is God and I'm not God. He's in charge. I'm not. He's smart. I'm not as smart. He has more insight. He has more wisdom. He has more knowledge. I acknowledge him. And that's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom? Learn about God. Know about God. Fear him. Not in a scared of God fear, but in an awe of who he is God. So the first thing to do is simply confess. First, you have to say, I sit in one of these three chairs. And then secondly, to ask the question. Now look, life change is uncomfortable. When we realize there's something that we need to change about our lives, it's hard to do that. But if you will begin to ask, what is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experience, the things I've already already experienced, even if you're 20 years old, the things I've already experienced in my life at 20, in light of my current circumstance, where I'm at right now, and then in in light of my future hopes and dreams, where I want to go, what is the wise thing for me to do in my life? And what I believe is that God will deliver you. I'm telling you, if you're able to make it out of one of these chairs, make it out. According to Proverbs, you will be the exception to the rule because it's hard to get out because you're already saying, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But what I believe is God, because of his love and grace, will accept your cry for mercy and will deliver you. But we have to be able to look in the mirror and say, I acknowledge that I'm in this chair and then say, God, I, I want to start asking, what is the wise thing for me to do? What's the wise thing? And then you've got to do it. It's not just one thing to ask God, what is the wise thing? I can say that every single day. But it's like, what is the wise thing? And then when God tells you what the wise thing to do is you continue to do it. Not that you're going to be perfect at it, but you just continue to do it. So you're able to move from here, if that's where you're at, to the wise chair. So again, where are you sitting this morning? Only between you and God. You know where you are. You know if you're naive, the fool, the scoffer of the mocker. Maybe you're already sitting in the wise seat. Where are you sitting this morning? Where would you, where would you like to sit? That's the question. It doesn't really matter, I guess, at this point when you figure out where am I sitting, where would you like to sit? If you would like to move out and begin to ask that, do it. What kind of man or woman do you want to become? If you're a parent, what kind of legacy, I would say, do you want to leave for your kids? What is the wise thing to do? So here's the thing. Chances are then the next move is going to be yours. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We thank you that we can come here and talk about some hard subjects. We are thankful for your word in Proverbs where it just really hits us and makes us think about who are we? Where are we? And why are we there? Maybe for some of you in this room or in the pavilion or watching online, maybe, maybe you're at a place in your life where like, you, don't, you realize you are one of these, but you don't even have a relationship with God. You can't even go to him because you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. Maybe that's you're acknowledging that. Well, that's where it's going to begin for you. To get out of one of these chairs as, as not being a Christian is just is understanding that Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for your sins. And it's just admitting that, yeah, I've messed up. I'm a sinner, God. 
and I believe that Jesus died for me. He took the punishment for all the dumb things I've done in these seats. And I, I believe who you are. And, I, and just, you just say this morning, I choose to follow you. So you just pray that. I admit that I've sinned. I've done things wrong. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me and my sins. And today I'm choosing to follow you. Now I'm asking you, God, to help me to always ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? So that I will make decisions in my life that will lead me to the best life possible that you have for me. And I can take other people along in this journey. Then maybe for all of us or people that you recognize you're, you're a believer, but you're sitting in one of these chairs, maybe uh, for the naive God, I would just ask that you give them the courage to say it. For the fool, give them the courage to say, I really do care. I do care. I've just hidden behind the fact that I didn't care. But I do care, and I want to make a difference. For the mocker, just help them to keep their mouths closed and listen to what's in their hearts. Maybe begin to work through the things that have put them at that place in their lives so they can begin to work through whatever that may be. And God, I pray as all of us that we would be able to really stand up in any area of our life and move to ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experience, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? And God, I also pray that for all of us, the naive and everyone included, God, that you would surround us with other people who would be able to come alongside of us who have experienced things that we haven't experienced to help us move faster down this path, down this, through this journey. Again, we just thank you. We thank you that you love us. Thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. It's Mel. Musical Chairs was a great analogy to help us remember and understand how where we choose to sit really does matter. We're praying that you can sit in the right seat and make wise decisions every time. Have a great day. See ya.